by starting with truly phenomenal produce, you don't actually have to do that much to make a great meal. Curate the stuff that goes into the food carefully and do that. That is a, a privilege that I would not have been afforded had I opened a place in the city. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. After the events of the last two years, many of us are seeing the value in regional travel, and many in the industry are creating new lives in regional towns too. As everyone looks to get out on the road and explore Australia, will we see the regional restaurant boom we're expecting? What does it take to create a destination restaurant that keeps in mind the local market too? Rowan Tahima is the owner and chef of the Mermaid Beach House in Coffs Harbour, New South Wales. Rowan, how are you? I'm really well, really well. You've uh, chosen an interesting period of time to open a restaurant during a pandemic in a regional area. What was it like in 2020 when you first opened the doors of the Mermaid? Oh, look, the the restaurant wouldn't have opened if it wasn't for the, the pandemic. Like, wow. There was no way that uh, it would have happened at all. Um, so back in March of 2020, just before the very first Melbourne lockdown, I was uh, sitting in my apartment uh, going down into uh, into winter uh, in an apartment that had no natural light, and I decided to uh, to get out. And wow. so um, uh, I called up my little brother, and he uh, drove down overnight uh, on the eve of the first lockdown. We packed all of my apartment up in a day and then drove back through the night again to be back in Coffs Harbour. Wow. And yeah, yeah. So it's, um, uh, it's, it's funny. Like uh, it's a, a, the birth of the place was, was literally a response to, to COVID and me just being bored in a new place. <laughs> well, tell us about um, why Coffs Harbour. What, what's, what's important in that region for you? Oh, look, it's, um, it's funny. Um, my family's been up here for 20-odd years. My mum was the, the director of the local gallery up here. And so uh, in her great wisdom, uh, started buying up little properties to help get her children onto uh, the property ladder and uh, has slowly, progressively moved all three of her sons into the local area to be closer <laughs> to her. Um, unfortunately, by the time I got here, all that was left was a little granny flat at the back of one of my uh, brother's houses. So, uh, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, was, uh, I'm very grateful for the uh, granny flat nonetheless. Is is the restaurant that you have today? Is that is that the vision that you thought of originally in September when you were about to open? Oh, not at all. No, no. Look, it's um, I, I came into Coffs thinking that it would be a really value driven market. And then mm. I'd open something that was casual, good, great food. You know, we were, we were always going to make um, all of our pasta from scratch and do as much as we could from first principles. But I thought, look, it's, there's going to be a price ceiling that um, if you're pitching to a uh, regional market that you, you just have to, to make it cheaper. And, um, mm. yeah, that, that, that is uh, – so that's where it started and um, it just isn't where it's ended up. What what made you realise the, the need for something uh, a bit more extravagant than than sort of an easy, uh, accessible, casual restaurant? The customers, you know, it's like I think that a restaurant is really a, a um, uh, it, you you have an owner's hopes and dreams. You know, it's mm-hmm. like we all go into a place, opening a place with uh, what we think would be great and what would work, um, but 
ultimately uh, your customers play such a huge role in dictating what works and you've just got to continue to listen and continue to iterate until you find something that um, both parties can be happy with you know, that are ecstatic by you know it's um uh, especially in a, a smaller market where what well, we've got 70 I think 73,000 in the in the LGA but you know, mm. that's that's over a fairly huge distance so what's that three Melbourne suburbs, not even, maybe two Melbourne suburbs. <laughs> um, uh, and so you've got to get people coming back. You know, if you don't have local custom and regular local custom, then uh, you, you have no opportunity to, uh, to grow. The, the industry has had its challenges in the last two years, but regional Australia has had it a little bit different to the cities. How have you felt the last two years operating uh, this restaurant? Oh, it, it, I feel so incredibly lucky. Uh, the, um, I had no expectation that uh, we would be off the ground so quickly. Um, mm. And um, even with the lockdowns, you know, it, uh, what we lost five weeks or six weeks, I think, to, uh, you know, everyone got sent home. Um, but that seems, you know, such a, a trifling amount of time compared to you know, the heartache that everyone's gone through elsewhere in Australia. Mm. So, um, look, you, the thing that you are aware of, though, is that uh, when, even though uh, everyone else is in lockdown in the, the capital cities, uh, you don't have tourists coming. So you've really got to focus on the, the people that are around you. You know, it's, um, they become more important than ever. Tell us about the local community and the local producers as well. What sort of connections have you made that have helped bring this restaurant to life? Oh, you know, um, it, it's been, we've continued to grow. Like the, the restaurant's just over a year old now and um, I only feel like we're beginning to finalise who it is that we will eventually be. Um, it's as the longer the period of time that I've managed to spend here, the deeper the connection I have with the people around me to grow and fish and uh, uh, the produce that we end up using. That um, it, it uh, my mum to return to my mum for the second time. Um, <laughs> it uh, always taught me to fish my feet first. She's a keen angler, mm, and um, so wow. you know, her her uh, philosophy is that you know you're going out fishing, you cast a line, don't cast it over the horizon, cast it immediately around you. And it's um, it's that wow. kind of idea that I've used to underpin our sourcing. You know, it's like um, obviously we will always get some stuff out of Sydney. Um, some produce comes out of Brisbane, but the vast majority of the stuff that I use is stuff that's grown by uh, the people in the food bowl immediately around us. And so um, I think I had originally thought that the menu would be this thing that came out of my head and, and uh, you know, it would be crafted. You know, if you have a, a massive supply chain around you and, and all of the great produce and you can make it anything you want, but rather it's turned into, well, what are people growing what do I have easy access to? What's mm. objectively delicious? And then how do I treat that produce with uh, as much care as I can just not to stuff it up? You've mentioned to your mum a few times, but take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play in your family? Oh, um, it, it's interesting. Mum's a terrible cook. <laughs> terrible. I'm just going to hear this and I'm going to never hear the end of it. But, um, uh, one of the reasons I can cook is because she can't. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I come from a, a um, my dad was a, a a cook as well, 
Um, and so I grew up in, in kitchens. Mm. Um, there's the other way I got uh, pocket money. You know, you, uh, you, you start in the dish pit and you uh, slowly work your way onto the line or you start doing prep and then eventually you get a, a spot on the line. Um, so cooking's always been a part of uh, what I did. But, um, yeah, it's funny. When I finally got out of uh, Darwin, I um, moved to Melbourne to be closer to my mother. My parents had long split by then mm. um, and kind of stopped working in the kitchen and started working on the floor. Mm. Yeah. Tell us about that transition because you, you have quite a fascinating career that's bounced between professional kitchen and, and sommelier, which is, which is pretty rare. What's it been like having your, your foot in both sort of camps? Well, you know, the, the amazing thing is um, I think I got to Melbourne back in 93, the end of 93, and the industry was very different back then. Uh, it's, um, uh, I had gone to Melbourne to go to university and um, uh, cooking and going to uni, just they, they do not work. You know, it, it, um, cooking is a, a, a thing that requires a huge amount of dedication to doing it right. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, well, I'll work on the floor then. And so um, I ended up getting a, a commie waiter's job in uh, at Walter's Wine Bar uh, at Southgate wow. with um, Walter and Maria Burke. Uh, this I think this was 1994 by now. And um, I think at the time they had three hats. Mm. Um, it, I think back then you could get five hats. <laughs> yeah, crazy. <laughs> um, so the thing that got me into wine was, you know, uh, at the end of the day, uh, and this is testament to Walter Burke, uh, all of the uh, the wine that had come in as samples over the course of the day, and people were dropping off samples there, like, there'd be a case of wine that would arrive from a variety of different people every day. Um, they would open up all of the wine at the, the staff meal would be at the end of the day and they'd open up all of the wine and then you'd collectively talk about it as a group. Wow. Yeah. And um, you know, their predates Wesset. And so I just, um, I think even Patrick Walsh was still at the restaurant at that stage. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was just this uh, hotbed of, of talent and um, and learning, and so I, it was very easy to fall in love with wine there. And um, so it just—I was at uni for a long time, far too long, if you ask my <laughs> mum. I think eight years. So in the eight years that I was at uni, uh, I, I kind of worked my way through a progression of different restaurants, um, and uh, had found you know uh, I had this kind of dual education, one formal in in. Uh, uh, at university, and then one informal in wine. And, um, yeah, that was a, a great place to be. Well, it led to some incredible roles, including sommelier at Nobu. What was that like, trying to uh, create the the beverage experience uh, in a restaurant that's sort of global? Look, it, it, the resources that uh, Nobu have is remarkable, and the pockets, the deep pockets. Um, and so you, you just had uh, access to um, basically anything that you wanted. So in an environment where money is of no issue and that you can just buy pretty much anything, then 
it's actually the act of curation that becomes the the principal uh, the principal task. It's like how do you put a range of things together? Because you can't have an infinitely long wine list, especially not in something that is as high tempo as uh, as Nobu was when we first opened. Mm. Um, and so you've got to craft something that is punchy, offers both extravagance and value, um, is interesting, like a, a kind of builds excitement within the diner, um, as well as, and at the time I had very little uh, experience with sake, um, as well as trying to learn an entirely new beverage category. <laughs> you had a balancing act between front of house and owning your own venues as well. What, what was the trigger for you to step out and go out on your own? Look, I think that um, I have had the, the great fortune to work with so many incredible uh, chefs uh, and operators along the way. Um, so, uh, I mean, time with Andrew McConnell, um, mm-hmm. time with uh, Jeff Lindsay, uh, uh, who taught you a lot, uh, and especially uh, Andrew. And working for Andrew was like going to a finishing school for uh, young restaurateurs you know, wow i think that um that the the quality of training they provide um just pro, uh, sets people up with a pathway of okay well i understand the fundamentals of how a good hospitality business should work um, and then it's up to you to put your imprint you've got to actually have something to say you know? and mm. so uh, i think that once you can establish what your what your own personal vision is, then um, yeah, you've got the the uh, the tool set, I guess, to um, run forward with it. Well, you put uh, um, yourself into a restaurant uh, in Armadale of all places. What what led to the move to there? Wow, actually, you know what? The, um, I, I had just come back from uh, working in Norway. So I'd done a, a eighteen month stint in Norway cooking up in the Arctic Circle. Um, and so I, I, I came back flush with money. <laughs> and, yeah, so, uh, and full of the, uh, the confidence of wanting to be able to cook my own food in my own setting. Um, and so I found myself at, uh, at the gallery there. So I went, uh, God, I'm going to count this. This is number three. My mother at the time was the, uh, the doing locum work as the director of the gallery up there at the New England Regional Art Museum. Uh, and so before I left to go to uh, Norway, she had uh, asked me to write a one-page uh, uh, brief on how they could fix their hospitality space. And um, I, I trot off to the other side of the world. Uh, had no particular uh, uh, plan other than uh, having an opportunity to cook somewhere else. Mm. Um, do 18 months there find myself with a bunch of cash, come back to Australia and then use that one page to actually uh, uh, as the business plan for my first restaurant. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's, um, uh, it was a, I loved that restaurant. It, um, uh, it's funny. I needed to, to do that restaurant. I needed to get that restaurant out of my system wow. uh, before I could do another. So it, um, it, it was a, a beautiful restaurant, but um, I refused to fix the cuisine in any particular style. And so rather we would uh, change the uh, the food um, based on whim. Uh, so each month I'd, ch- I'd choose a different cuisine based on places that I'd travelled and cooked. So um, uh, it was it was a bit vainglorious, to be honest. You know, it's like... <laughs> 
get over yourself. <laughs> um, that uh, I, I think it's funny. Like uh, Australian cooks, by and large, we're we're journeymen. You know, it's, we'd lack uh, the deep. Uh, granular knowledge of any particular cuisine. And so we're, we're very good at lots of things, but, uh, <laughs> excellent at very few. And uh, ultimately, I think uh, that uh, that's certainly what uh, Harvest turned out to be. It was a great little place. I loved it. You know, it's, um, uh, it, over the, the run there, we managed to uh, set up a music festival and open a, uh, mm. a community garden. And, um, yeah, that uh, it really gave insight. Armadale... Uh, provided that kind of sense of certainty that uh, a regional community uh, can come together to celebrate something collectively. You know, that's, um, I, I felt really well supported there and um, it certainly gave me confidence that uh, when I decided to open up here that uh, it would be an opportunity to, again, feel that sense of, uh, of love from a, a population, from an audience. You mentioned that Harvest was a restaurant that you had to get out of your system. What were the lessons that you learned from that experience? Oh, don't make it all about you. A restaurant's not about you. Yeah, it's like it's um, it, it certainly has to have a, a part of you in it, and um, but it, it can't be just one hundred percent about you. If it is, then um, you're just you're just too full of your own brio, I guess. Yeah, it's um, it was. Kind of gross. I, I uh, even had a, a portrait of myself hung in the restaurant, and I, I'd never do that again. <laughs> I, I, I want to circle back because you mentioned about 18 months of your life that sounded pretty fascinating in the Arctic Circle. Do you have any stories from chefing in that time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, it was wild. Yeah, it's like Australia is really blessed when it comes to seafood, and the quality of seafood we get is generally excellent. Um, and the range of it is phenomenal. Um, you get a much smaller range of uh, of food of uh, seafood in mm. Norway, but the quality of it would be almost even better. Wow! But, um, yeah, so I travelled to Norway to spend time with um, other hospo mates who had uh, just on the cusp of starting a family, and um, so I, I went to see my godson born. And I thought that that would be a six-week stint. Mm. Uh, and then I had lined up a, a stage at Nam. I was going to go and cook Thai food for a year. Wow. Uh, but got there, and um, Norway's a funny place. Uh, each winter or each summer, uh, they basically send their entire workforce on summer holiday. So it, everyone goes at the same time. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so what they do over that period of time is they import labour from everywhere because I've just got Norway, you know, has Norway money. They've got that massive sovereign fund of theirs. And so they have these incredible levels of social services. Mm. And so they import people from everywhere. And um, so I walked into an environment just thinking I'd pick up a, a job on the line for, you know, six weeks, earn some money, spend some time with bats, drink uh, Russian vodka. Um to find that there was a, a just I'd walked into a, what was an absolute bin fire of a restaurant um, that desperately needed just a little bit of guidance. Um, and so uh, that six-week uh, stint turned into, you know, three months and three months turned into six months. And then suddenly I was the um, exec chef over a couple of hotels 
Wow. Uh, up in Kikines or Sheikines. So um, to put that into context, Sheikines is about as far north and as far east as you can go in Norway without crossing into Russia. Wow. So it's um, the terminus point for Hurtigurten. Hurtigurten is the coastal steamer that goes up through all of the fjords. Um, so it starts in Bergen in the south and then ends in Chikinis in the north. And so if you're going on Hurtigurten the full length, you'll either fly into or fly out of Chikinis. So it's a, um, it's a funny town. It's only 3,000 people. Uh, it's about as far away from Oslo as you can be while still being in uh, mm-hmm. in. Norway, and um, it gets a fair number of tourists. Uh, so that's where I found myself cooking, um, and uh, suddenly, uh, immediately reached out and uh, pulled together a crew of other Australian cooks. Wow! And um, yeah, we just had this little corner in the uh, in the Arctic for for a, a good run. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, uh, have you ever had king crab? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, king crabs endemic across uh, mm. all the Kamchatka, so all the way across the top of Russia, um, through Canada, and certainly around um, uh, Norway. Uh, so you'd go into the fjord if you uh, put goggles on, you can just see king crabs basically everywhere. <laughs> um, you uh, so when we uh, during summer, you'd uh, go down and uh, people would swim out and lay down a net. Um, and then uh, they'd just leave for a couple of hours. You'd go back with a spear later and then just spear all of the king crabs and then grab the four corners of the net and maybe pull up 80, 90 kilos wow. of crab. Uh, and we'd just set up 44-gallon drums with fjord water um, and then just put fires under them, get them boiling, dump in the crab, <laughs> and uh, that's how we'd do a staff party. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's um, And it's Aussies being Aussies, uh, uh very early in our tenure, uh, we bought a uh, a jerry can, a brand new jerry can, and then um, uh, kicked uh, kicked it around a car park until it looked all banged up. <laughs> uh, we used to drive across into Russia uh, and fill that jerry can up with vodka because you, <laughs> you buy a bottle of vodka in uh, in uh, Nickel, which is the closest town to Shikinis uh, across the border, for about two dollars Australian. And um, uh, a bottle of gin at the uh, the state-run alcohol store. Uh, so all alcohol in uh, in Norway is uh, sold through uh, state-run or state-owned stores. So they they control everything, and there's very high taxation on uh, on booze in Norway. Uh, so Australians, being you know the uh, degenerate. Uh, alcohols we are, uh, would drive across to uh, uh, Russia, fill up a jerry can with uh, you know, kind of 50 litres of uh, vodka uh, and then drive it back across the border. No one ever checked. <laughs> You'd even drive to Finland to buy beer because it's uh, beer is uh, in Finland is about the same cost as the beer in uh, Australia, about 40 bucks a slab or 50 bucks a slab, 40 bucks a slab 10 years ago. <laughs> Tell us about what you were cooking there. Were there some ingredients that you hadn't used before and and how do you create a menu uh, for an environment like that that you're not familiar with? Experimentation. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I was surrounded by people smarter than me. I, I, I always try to be the least talented cook in my kitchen. Um, the, yeah, just a lot, the opportunity to experiment with new things, I mean, that's the fun bit. Yeah, it's... Um, uh, so the Sami uh, are the um, 
uh, well, uh, the proper name for Eskimos in the area, mm. uh, and uh, they're nomadic herdsmen of reindeer. And so, um, yeah, cooking reindeer, uh, it's like um, venison. Uh, yeah. Um, wow. Uh, that was quite fun. The king crab. Um, the best halibut I've ever, ever eaten. You know, just um, the texture and quality of it was extraordinarily good. Um, and it makes, though very, very expensive to do here in Australia, the best fish and chips I've ever eaten. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, I even, uh, the, the Norwegians, uh, especially being based in a hotel, uh, hotels in Norway are expected to provide a buffet of food um, uh, quite frequently. Quite frequently they'll do it for a day a week or uh, especially over Christmas. There's lots of uh, Christmas buffets. That's how they tend to entertain. Probably not so much now with COVID, but uh, certainly at the time. Uh, and one of the mainstays on a uh, Norwegian Christmas buffet is lutefisk. Mm. Uh, lutefisk is um, uh, fish that's been cured in lye or uh, traditionally it had been uh, even done with urine wow. uh, and it has this very very pungent uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to say offensive because someone will probably write a letter but um, <laughs> I, I, I would go as far to say unpleasant um, smell, stench Stench um, is reasonable, and the palate has a kind of uh, 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 caramelly uh, uh, flavour. Um, mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's an acquired taste, um, <laughs> but it was a, an expected mainstay on the on the menu. I even had to cook minky whale in Norway, actually. Wow! Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a Norway and Japan. Uh, uh, um, uh, per capita, uh, the highest uh, consumers of whale in the world. Uh, and um, if you haven't tried whale, it does not have a whole lot to, uh, to, uh, for me to advocate in its case for. It, does, it uh, has this kind of deep livery, uh, almost bloody uh, uh, flavour that's quite pervasive. Um, and uh, in, despite significant experimentation i'm yet to find a way to make uh, wild taste objectively delicious <laughs> well back in australia you've you've had a regional restaurants sort of a decade apart is a regional restaurants different to a decade ago yeah i i think that i've i'm better at it now than i was a decade ago that, that, that certainly um things but i think that the basic fundamentals are somewhat similar in that uh, there is always going to be a skills gap um, that you're always going to spend time having to build staff um, from the ground up, which mm. is, is a good thing. You know, it's um, if so long as you go in expecting it, that you're not just going to be able to advertise for a sous chef and expect uh, for great candidates to come uh, come knocking. Um, though if there are any great candidates, call me. Um, <laughs> so... That's one. Uh, certainly, you, the expectation that the the staffing is uh, you have to build that for yourself and build a team, mm. and really aim to give people the jobs that they want, um, so you get uh, longer tenure. Uh, it's like the longer you can hold on to someone in a regional area, the better. Um, two is that you can't ever take your eye off a local market. That um, you don't have an infinite number of customers to burn. Mm. But, um, sometimes I feel like cooking in the city. Um, you, uh, 
you absolutely restaurants build um, a regular clientele and they they do represent a small but very valuable uh, component to the overall revenue a restaurant creates. Mm. But in a regional area, that that re, uh, that uh, return the return diner um, makes up a significant uh, proportion of your overall revenue. And so, whatever you do, it has to re- people have to respond to it, and they have to want to. Um, want to dine with you again and again and again. So it um, uh, you very much, uh, well, in this restaurant especially, um, the restaurant was almost designed by the people that kept on coming. Uh, wow. That, um, they wanted more seafood. We got more seafood. You know, they, they wanted to spend more money and stay longer in the venue. Great, I'll make it more comfortable for you. you know, it's, um, when we opened, we had two wines. A, a red wine and a white wine that uh, I had shipped up from Melbourne and we're doing in kegs because it's all I could afford. I had no money, like no money at all. Um, and so we started very modestly, a red wine, white wine and a Prosecco, just a cheap Prosecco. But I think at the time I bought out a Dan's because, you know, I just I had nothing to spend. Um, and gradually over time, you know, it's like now I think we've got, Four Barbarescos, handful of Barolo. Wow! Yeah, and they sell. You know, it's uh, the it's a interesting dynamic that um, if you allow your customers to kind of give you those insights, it's the best way that you can perfect and just not being so uh, so too much of an egotist. It's mm. not about you; it's about them. The summer could be one of the busiest ever for regional areas in Australia. How are you feeling about that? Yeah, I'm just growing as quickly as I can. Yeah, that um, uh, my little brother and one of my apprentices spent a couple of days working mostly in the rain, paving out uh, our front garden. <laughs> um, so uh, that that will add an extra twenty seats. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, and it's also. Um, uh, I see it as a, a massive opportunity uh, again. So um, uh, I'm intending on uh, have just uh, sent a shipping container to a builder, which we're going to build out and put a pizzeria in in the backyard. Wow! Uh, it's, yeah, it's astounding. Like um, the the restaurant itself sits on a, a thousand square meter block, immediately opposite the ocean. You, know, you can't see it through the, the scrub, but you, know, you walk across the road and you walk down a path and you are at the beach, um, and the place had laid empty for two years. You know, it, it's like it, it boggled my mind that uh, I, I might be lucky enough to be the custodian of the space. And um, and being COVID, I was able to negotiate hard um, because you know, then, as I've briefly mentioned, I had no money. Um, I, I could not afford a director's guarantee on the rent. So you know, I, I was able to negotiate a long rent-free period and uh, and just start with the uh, the absolute basics. Mm. There's nothing there's nothing like poverty to uh, encourage innovation. <laughs> You've had a, an extraordinary career and now operating a, a great regional restaurant that's full of promise at the moment. What do you, what do you love about what you're doing? Oh, lots of things. You know, it, it's um, uh, I, I'm finally in a position where. Uh, I, I'm talking to farmers about what I'm hoping they will grow for me in the coming mm-hmm. seasons. Uh, it's um, it's 
in, an interesting experience to start designing a menu by starting at the beginning mm. of a supply chain. Wow. Um, that, you know, it's like I I have a woman who grows all of my tomatoes. She's amazing. Chinky, if she ever hears this. Um, I actually think that she might be a magician. Now, there, <laughs> there is no other godly reason that one person should be able to get tomatoes so ripe in what has been a pretty average season so far, mm. but just extraordinarily good. You know? um, I've got people growing me um, uh, broad bends, but I only want them the size of my finger. You know? uh, it's like it, it, uh, by starting with truly phenomenal produce, mm. then you don't actually have to do that much to make a great meal. You know, it's it's just find just curate the stuff that goes into the food carefully and do that. So that number one, that, that I think that uh, that is a, a a privilege that I would not have been afforded had I opened a place in the city. Mm. Um, two is the act of building a team. You know, building a, a real family um, of you know misfits. We're all misfits, um, <laughs> but uh, giving people jobs that they adore you know, it's like gone are the days where you can just be an ass and yell at people it, it, it's just it's an ineffective way of of um, managing a, a team anymore um, and you know watching people grow you know, it's um that's uh, it's a massive privilege well you're only a year in but you're making an incredible impact and and this period of time has given you opportunity to really explore your passion but what are you looking forward to in the next couple of years look if i play my cards right if i'm very 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 lucky i might actually get to start a family <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know it's a, I, i've always considered myself too selfish to have a family that's why i've opened restaurants um but uh i, I think that much like my staff you know, I'd, I'd like to build the kind of venue that um that allows for a real sense of work-life balance mm. and allows people to do things that if they wanted to, you know, kids would be something that sit within that realm of possibility. So, you know, fingers crossed on that. Well, uh, Rowan, I hope that that happens and um, amazing to hear what you're doing in Coffs Harbour. We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Uh, please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Pleasure to chat. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.